This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Michigan Farm Bureau CEO is Scott Piggott, a thoughtful leader who has a heart to serve, a mind to solve problems, and a spirit to seize an opportunity, along with the passion to help those who need a hand up. Scott understands the need, the opportunities, and with the Farm Bureau family of companies committing to serve our mission of creating a food secure state, I can't think of a better guest to have this season of Thanksgiving and beyond. Stay with us today as Jerry Brisson and I unpack with Michigan Farm Bureau CEO Scott Piggott the potential for partnership policy change and the procurement of food for those struggling under a food insecure lifestyle. That's next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. As promised, Scott Pickett, the CEO for Michigan Farm Bureau, joins Jerry and I today in our WJR studio. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I have to say, now that you're on the board of the Food Bank Council, it has been such a delight to hear from you very regularly. And, you know, as part of the robust conversations we're having to, you know, make the, the dream a reality about a food secure Michigan. And we, we just finished our, uh, our uh, strategic planning session. It was fascinating and so many great things to talk about. I hope we can pick on a few of those during the show. But before we get, you know, right into the deep end, remind our listeners a little bit about you know, who's Scott? Why, why, why are you here? <laughs> well, I am blessed to work for the farmers of the state. So I work for about 40,000 farmers across Michigan. Uh, I'm blessed to, to work in an organization that's been around for over 100 years. Uh, it is a farmer's organization. Our board of directors, our president are all elected farmers. And uh, we work really hard to help our farmers have a better life, um, to have a better way of life. Farming's changed a lot in the last, you know, from when 100 years ago when most people worked on farms. Uh, today, that's not the case. And it takes a lot of uh, effort and time to explain, in some cases, farming. Um, from my standpoint, it's not too hard. I, I live and work on a, on a farm. Um, my family's been on the same piece of ground for 180 years. Um, my kids will be the seventh generation to, to live out in, in that area. Um, so my life is agriculture. I raise corn, wheat, and soybeans with my family and, uh, and beef cattle. So we have moms and babies walking around the pasture. And uh, right now they're a little closer to the barns because it's cold outside. Hmm. Uh, but the farmers I work for, agriculture in, in Michigan is very diverse. There's over 350 different types of crops and commodities grown in our state. Farms, um, I've got uh, members that have five acres of raspberries and do very well. Uh, I have some uh, of our farmers that uh, that have a thousand animals, um, and they need that to be able to scale uh, to a, to an extent to involve their family. It um, it is a very changing, a dynamic, very technologically driven industry. I don't think people understand our use of global positioning systems and our tractors, our uh, 
our use of drones and drone technology. We do that quite a bit to look at our crops. Um, it is a very advanced agriculture, and I'm very, very proud to represent it. Well, Scott, it's great to have you, and thanks for taking the time, and um, thanks for serving with us on the Food Bank Council of Michigan's Board of Directors. Uh, I guess that kind of makes both of you guys my boss, but I don't really want to <laughs> remind you of that too much. Right. It'll just send us off into a, are we really? When Did we really sign up for that? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's more than anyone should have to bear, for sure. Um, but so uh, I, I think I want to, to, as Jerry said, jump into the deep end of the pool here. And this is the conversation we've had a little bit. So kind of the state of food. And, and, and while the, the headlines maybe have, have gone away a little bit, the war in the Ukraine, the aggression by Russia onto the sovereign nation of the Ukraine has really sent not just ripple, but really tidal wave effects across the economy, but particularly the agricultural economy. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? I'll do my best. Um... You know, we've always had happenstances, things happen in the world that affect our agricultural economy. Uh, there are a lot of production areas in our, in our world that when something happens in Brazil to soybean production, it affects the way that, that we price our soybeans here in the United States. Um, we are in a global economy. So Ukraine and Russia produce about one-third of the world's wheat supply. Well, wheat in the United States, um, you know, we don't, we compete, but we're not at the levels of Europe and, and the Russian uh, states as well as Ukraine. So when there's a supply chain uh, alteration any place in the world, we feel that ripple. And when you talk about wheat and wheat production, um, if you are growing more wheat in our country, which we grow a significant amount here in Michigan, uh, when you need to grow more of that, you're growing less of other things. Mm. So wheat acreage will compete for soybean acreage, which eventually will compete for corn acreage. All of those things being influenced by a changing energy structure in our country. Um, the ripple effects of, of the European Union talking about Russian oil, and do they use it, do they not? Natural gas pipelines being interrupted. All of that has a direct effect on agriculture. Today, uh, we're spending over $5 a gallon on diesel to be able to fuel our tractors to fuel our farms. Uh, that's $1.50 more per gallon than what we paid just a year ago today. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, natural gas and, and petroleum movement around the world, those have a direct impact on our fertilizer prices. We use manures, just like we have for thousands of years to raise crops, but not every farm has livestock. And we use petroleum-based fertilizers, nitrogen, potassiums, um, and phosphorus. Nitrogen-based fertilizers tripled in prices in some, in some cases this last spring. Phil, to your point, when something happens on a, that affects the global agricultural scale, the ripple effects get felt around the world. And it's not just for that one crop hmm. like wheat. It affects all the other cereal crops. It affects, cereal, it affects energy production. Uh, a large portion of our corn in the United States goes to ethanol production. When you change acreage because you need to raise more wheat because it's not coming in or more soybeans, it has a ripple effect in a lot of directions, to your point. Wow. So I did read, Scott, that um, I, a large percentage, I'm going to say maybe a third of the ingredients it takes to make fertilizer, potash, so mm -hmm. the, comes from this 
Ukrainian Russian region, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons, you know, for the price tripling. Now I, I want to I want you to comment on that, but I also want you to pick it up there and take it because the reason we use fertilizer is to increase yield. So if we're not can't afford to use as much fertilizer, it stands the reason yields are going to be down. Maybe not this year, maybe, but next year, the year at, and and my point being that this is not something that's going to stop in the by next growing season. No, you you, you make a, a fantastic point. Today, our commodity prices are up from where they had been in the past. It helps a far, farmer to weather the storm. Um, you're also seeing those increase, increases in food prices. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody is inside of the stores. Thanksgiving this year, um, it's about 20% more expensive than Thanksgiving last year. So food prices um, also follow the same way that our commodity prices ebb and flow. Right now, we're, we're doing okay with our commodity prices on various grains. The difficulty becomes we're getting more higher input costs, whether it's diesel, whether it's fertilizers, whether it's seed or chemical costs for our crops. When those commodity prices, when the price of corn goes down, those other prices, those input prices, don't normally track. They don't, to your point, it's not just a once once in a, a year shot and then everything else returns to normalcy. No, in fact, our input prices will continue to stay high as we ride a very variable commodity market. They're commodities for a reason. Farmers are, are price takers, not price makers. Uh, we sell commodities on an open market. When those input prices change, it, it changes our ability to make food. You know, I don't foresee, uh, you know, outside of weather events, agriculture has continued to produce um, to the extent where we feed the country. And we export quite a few grains and, and meats from our, our nation. Um, the hope is that we continue to stay viable on our farms so that we can produce the things that we need first and foremost, like milk and meat and grains. Well, Jerry, I know you're chomping at the bit here, but I'm, I'm going to make you wait, <laughs> which is why I love my job on this show. Between so, you and the producer, yeah, uh, you right, need a little yeah, help I, to make me wait. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this part of the job. Scott Piggott, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. We're going to be back with you. We want you to stay with us on this edition of Food First Michigan. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Scott Piggott, the CEO for the Michigan Farm Bureau, is our guest in the studio today. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. Jerry, I, I wouldn't let you go extend that last segment any longer, but this one, hey, I'm going to throw it to you and get out of the way. <laughs> well, you know, my experience uh, is that every perfect storm, farmers end up with a perfect solution or something like it. Um, I would never bet against a farmer in terms of figuring out what they have to do next. I just wouldn't. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a business that, that, that um, teaches such creativity uh, depending on what the variables actually 
turn out to be. Uh, and and all of them have pluses and minuses. When there's a great year and huge yields, that can affect price in a negative way, and you would think people would be making a lot of money, but nope. And then there's a terrible year and terrible yields, but the prices go up and people figure out what to do. And, and, and you know, knowing farmers for as long as we have, we have a tremendous amount of faith in the farming community um, to figure out what they need to do. So much so, in fact, that at the... Um, at the strategic planning meeting we were talking about how to get to a food secure state and and we were looking at you know well what is the capacity of of michigan farmers to to produce all the food that would be needed and your your answer and i i think i got this right but if i don't you can you can say jerry that wasn't what i said your answer was how about this just tell me what you need and i got the rest I mean, it's like, don't worry about it, right? And so so talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about that level of confidence in, in what farmers can do and will do if they know what needs to be done. I'll, I'll start where you ended. If they know what needs to be done. Um, I have been blessed over the last decade to learn more about need and food insecurity in our state. Uh, I have great mentors in, in both Phil and Jerry and others who have who have helped me to understand that it's not uh, food and in, food insecurity and hunger are not specific to any one position in the state, any one place. Um, I learned that some of our most food insecure areas are rural areas, and I didn't understand that when uh, when we first started having this conversation. I think about if when our farmers understand that we're not talking about some. Um, far away municipal place that they that they don't normally go to, that that's where hunger lives. It's it's not it's not the case, and I think any of the folks that I'm blessed to work for, when they find out that hunger exists in their own communities, when they understand that there's a different way that they could grow or produce something that could help to solve a problem, um, I've seen it. Uh, you guys have seen it. We have farmers that work with the food banks across the state. A lot of times we're not very good at telling their story. I was with some farmers earlier uh, in the springtime, and they were talking about um, instead of going to the county fair and, and, and spending money at a county fair on whatever the process was or project was, uh, that county farm bureau decided that they wanted to buy freezers for all of their food pantries in their county and fill them throughout a year, commit to keeping them filled with, with beef and pork at their own cost. The people I work for are very caring, thoughtful people. Um, they farm because it's a way of life. It's not, yes, it's a business, but it's a way of life that they've chosen. And it's got all those ebbs and flows that you mentioned. Uh, I have no doubt of the capacity of agriculture to be able to address some of the hunger issues that we have in our state. Um, we're a cold climate state, but we also grow lots of fruits and vegetables. Knowing that hunger doesn't take a doesn't take winter off, um, and neither do our, our farmers, but understanding that we can really put a foot forward, we already do. Uh, this year, we had the largest apple crop in our state's history. Wow. And uh, it's, it, was a, it was a very good crop. We had some short crops these last couple of years. I know a lot of farmers uh, throughout the state that donated a lot of apples to the causes that you guys represent, um, and they took those causes as their own. So I have no doubt in the in the giving and the thoughtfulness of farmers in our state to address an issue as long as they can understand it and know how to know how to fix it that's what they do so i uh which is 
inspirational. I mean, honestly, um, the, the growers we work with are, are exactly the way you described it. I was walking through our warehouse at a time when we're really light on inventory, and I saw all these gray wooden crates, huge gray wooden crates, all apples. It was like walking through a, a, a little city, all these skyscrapers <laughs> of, of apple crates. And, uh, and it's because they heard the call. It's because they heard the call. They knew we were hurting for for uh, for fresh fruits and vegetables, and they said, "We got it. Here you go." I mean, you know, and we certainly purchase some, but but a lot gets donated as well. And it's that mix of of purchasing and, and donations that's really the right mix because you know farmers need to make a living, and and everything we do in, in the food banking world that can that can help, I guess, moderate or or let let the growers know we're committed to a certain amount of of purchasing they'll always give us the best price i mean always and uh and then when there is something to donate they'll donate it you know our, the donations have always gone up as we've been able to commit more on our side mm-hmm. and it works both ways so when our donors give we say well every dollar gets you three meals well this is why it's these it's these relationships that get developed over periods of time where everybody understands what everybody needs it's never a one-way solution right it's we all depend on each other and we we think one of the biggest keys to success in reaching rural communities is stimulating the economy as well as getting these guaranteed loads at a certain price to everyone who needs food because they're food insecure somewhere in that mix of and we talk about dairy in particular where we know dairy is milk fresh milk is one of the things most requested from the people that we serve and we could use more fresh milk well you can't donate an infinite amount of fresh milk there's this relationship where you buy some and you get some donated and and you start to involve people and we're talking about do we could do we should we be thinking about more milk processing it's produced all year long it's not a seasonal crop right you got to milk the cows every day and so you know we're talking about things like that as ways to connect all the dots right not just what do hungry people need not just what do uh, rural communities need also, what does the State Department of Agriculture need so that we can continue to be one of the most successful agriculture states in the country? But then what do farmers and rural communities need? It's connecting all of those dots together so that everybody wins when you come up with a solution. And, and we're just excited about continuing to move down that path. Our dairy producers um, have had some rough years. They haven't had fantastic prices in the last number of years. And... Our dairy folks, you know, I can't think of a, all of my farmers are great, and I can't call one out over another. Um, and they want folks to be healthy, and they want folks to have more milk and dairy products, not simply because they sell them, but because they're good. Yeah. And because there's, a, there's an opportunity for our farmers to continue to be part of a solution. Um, I think anything that can help us to, to bridge uh, between need and, and meeting a market demand, um, our farmers have proven time and again that they produce. Uh, and that's what they do. That's the job. Which is one of the reasons in our strategic planning meeting at the Food Bank Council of Michigan, you said, just tell me what you need. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got a group of guys and men and women who farm in this state that can really 
do whatever it is that we need done. And I think that would be a great topic to talk about in our third segment with Scott Piggott, the CEO of the Michigan Farm Bureau, Jerry Brisson, I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're all three back with you in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back with you, Scott Piggott, the CEO from Michigan Farm Bureau, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. And uh, gentlemen, when we closed out the last segment, we talked about, I don't know, I'm going to just say the greatness, (laughs) because that's really what I feel, the greatness of our farmers and agricultural leaders in this state. Um, I know that we always say this, uh, and you kind of illustrated it, Scott, that, that Michigan is the most diverse agricultural state in the U.S. except for California. I mean, they can grow nuts and olives and things we don't bother with here. But I think that's pretty spectacular given that our growing season is pretty short. We do have a a relatively short growing season. Uh, And you're right, Phil. We grow about 350 different commodities and crops across the state. Um, And we grow all year long. We got uh, quite a few folks with large greenhouses. Um, If you get towards the west side of the state, uh, a lot of asparagus production. We lead uh, the country in asparagus production. Blueberries. uh, People don't think of potato production in our state, but Mm -hmm. we lead the country in and uh, anytime you have a bag of potato chips, we lead the country in chip potatoes. Right. Um, and they're raised all over the place. They're raised in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, they're raised throughout the, the middle part of the state. Um, when I think about our farmers and the things they produce, there's a lot of things on their minds right now. You know, what are they, what are they, we always ask our farmers, and I get to see, we have a, our large annual meeting for Michigan Farm Bureau coming up soon, and I get to see a couple hundred of my favorite friends, a couple thousand of my favorite friends, and uh, whenever I sit with them for dinner at night uh, for different meetings, I ask them, you know, what keeps you up? What keeps you up at night? Uh, farm profitability is right at the front of their minds. How are they going to continue to live and grow in this way of life that has a lot of unpredictability? Uh, you're living within God's domain when it comes to the weather. Uh, things that happen in other parts of the world that change their price structures. Uh, input prices that are well beyond what they can control. Labor is a big issue in Michigan. Sure. Um, when you have a lot of hand-harvested crops, there aren't a lot of people that you know, are that we're teaching our children to grow up and you know pick fruit or, or pick, uh, pick vegetables. So having labor, particularly within our fruit and vegetable growers, uh, but our, our dairy folks too. Um, I think Jerry mentioned it last segment. Dairy, it's the milk, cows get milked every day. And finding the people who can help to get that done. Uh, we implement technology. Uh, we have several farms that implement robotic milkers, so mm-hmm. they have uh, robotic. It's really kind of a fun thing to see. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not even that new of technology, but uh, labor is on the forefront of their minds, and farm succession. You know, as farms continue to shrink in numbers in our state, uh, right now uh, it's there's about as I mentioned about 40,000 folks who farm in the state, and about. of the production comes from 20% of those farms. Hmm. So when you think about, there's a lot of small farms in our state that are, it's wonderful, take farms of all sizes. As I mentioned, that if you can be viable on a small number of acres, that's awesome. Uh, We all have to recognize, though, that our food system has changed. Hmm. 50% of the groceries in our country are bought from Walmart. 
uh, and understanding that the the structure of how we get food into people's hands uh, it's really changed and it's changed a lot in the world that the food bank council of michigan and gleaners and all of our other food banks it's changed the way that you fulfill a need sure um, farmers want to be a part of that so if we can continue to produce if there are times of excess where we can be um, farmers don't beat their chest very well we're not we're humble people and we don't like to talk about the things we do um, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing uh, type of mentality uh, but they're very proud of their opportunities that they have to support good causes and uh, we want more of that I think one of the things we learned during the pandemic was that the the supply chain has some kinks in it right we we got to look at how food is produced from beginning to end. We got to know where those choke, choke points are. We got to know the raw materials we need and where they're coming from. I mean, we ran out of aluminum a couple times, and it's not that we didn't have green beans. We didn't have aluminum cans to, to put them in. And and so I do think that, that our looking at um, all of these farms, the big ones and the small ones, and thinking carefully about that mix as a good thing, right? That that economies of scale are a good thing for, for a business plan for sure. But there are some downsides to, to having too many too many resources in one area. I think the pandemic definitely showed us that it's nice to have uh, different fallback positions, if you will, when you think about the whole food supply chain. One thing is for sure, tomorrow we're gonna wanna eat, right? There's a, or maybe some of you are less voracious than me, so maybe it'll be two days for you. But I promise you, I'm going to want to eat again today and probably tomorrow a couple times, right? So, so putting the putting the right, um, uh, if 